I'm sorry to disappoint you today, but I misspoke yesterday when I said Seth Richardson would be here. He's taking some well-deserved time off. So it's Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. With me, Chris Quinn and Lisa Garvin and Laura Johnston. We'll have a nice conversation between the three of us. Happy Wednesday. Happy Hump Wednesday. Day. <laughs> I don't know. Is it hump day when you have four inches of snow predicted on Friday? That kind of moves the whole weight of the week to the end of the week. We get up. Yeah, but if you look ahead to St. Patrick's Day, it looks like it's going to be mm-hmm. 60. So, Whoa. I mean, yeah. Whoa. Could be a good and one. We're going to gather in our building because it might be the last time we're there because the building, as everybody knows, is up for sale. Yeah. Let's begin. How much the Ohio legislature's push to control how race is taught in the schools cost high school students across the state the college credits they've been earning in their advanced classes. Laura, this is a fascinating wrinkle in the continuing debate by legislators to control what teachers say in the classroom. Absolutely. And it really puts some real world uh, consequences to the stuff that the Republicans have been talking about in the legislature. And it's always seemed very ideological, but this is like dollars and cents when you get down to it, because the college board might take away the AP certification if Ohio high schools no longer meet the course requirements in their classes. And this is because of two bills in the Ohio House that aim to ban and control how teachers present social studies and civics content around civil rights, racism, sexism, and other, quote, divisive topics. So this comes from a statement from the College Board on their website. It opposes the censorship of teachers and students. It says it opposes indoctrination of students. It wants students to become independent thinkers and that AP courses offer, quote, an unflinching encounter with evidence. So you can't just whitewash the past. You actually have to deal with it. And if the school bans the required topics from the AP courses, the AP program removes that designation. And of course, AP is important not only because these are more advanced classes for uh, advanced students to take, but then you can get credit in college for it. So you could start, you know, as a sophomore when you're a freshman, if you got enough of these, and that would save you time and money in your college degree. So very real implications. Yeah, this is going to be a pocketbook issue because it does cost more money. It, it is a different prism to think about what we're, what these legislators really want to do is take away higher level thinking from our schools. Mm-hmm. They don't want and, and, you know, you want to take that one step further. This is what Vladimir Putin is doing in Russia. He's shutting down any other perspective but the one he wants people to see, which turns out to be totally false. This is what our legislators are doing. They want the kids in the school to only see the perspective they have and deprive them of things that can help lead to higher levels of thought. Now it's going to cost their parents a bunch of money because they'll have to pay for all those college credits. Very interesting. Although you wonder, are these Republicans' kids taking the AP right. classes in the first place? <laughs> I'm sorry. That was, <laughs> <laughs> that was really mean. But it does, It does. you're right. This is trying to if they're trying to get rid of a perspective that is valid then the ap board is going to say sorry you don't meet our requirements so um i i really hope they they talk about this and laura hancock wrote the story she called the people who have sponsored the bills and asked wanted to ask them does this make you rethink it of course they did not respond oh, come on. one of them's diane grendel so no right. <laughs> there's the answer to that is going to be simple no there's no ridiculous bill she's ever seen she didn't support i i do this does 
put a focus on the fact, though, that we're trying to deprive our students of information, of thought. Where, mm-hmm. You know, the, the whole purpose. You're right, critical thinking. Yeah, yes. You want kids to grow up being thoughtful and to consider all sides and to form educated opinions. You can't do that unless you get to hear all sides. And these legislators are trying to deprive them of hearing one side. And good for the AP folks for saying, well, that's not advanced thinking, so you don't get credit for it. Go ahead, Lisa. Oh, I was just going to say that, you know, the lack of critical thinking skills seems to be a goal of the, you know, because people without critical thinking skills are easier to manipulate through propaganda and mm-hmm. misinformation. So, yeah, this is, seems like almost it's a goal. That's totally Totally. You're totally right, Lisa. And both bills are supported by this group called Honesty for Ohio Education, which that name is just laughable. And the spokesman talked in circles. I'm going to read this quote. The main problem with AP is it's not as available as it should be. Some schools have a lot of AP courses. Some schools have none. I think it's really irresponsible to be undercutting things like AP. And really, we're undercutting people's freedom to learn about their history. And that's what matters here. Can anybody understand <laughs> what that's trying to say? Because I feel like you're right. If you don't have critical thinking skills, you'd be like nodding. But like, if you look at that statement, what are you talking about? Yeah, this, I mean, look, the, the parallels to what's happening in Russia are pretty strong. I mean, they're basically going to block you from getting necessary information to be thoughtful. So you'll only think in my indoctrinated way. That's what the Republicans in the legislature want this state to work like. Can, can I add one more thing? This bill, these bills are being considered in the House State and Local Government Committee. That's where 10 of the 15 panel members are Republicans. Some are ultra conservatives. Normally, it's an education bill. It would be assigned to the House Primary and Secondary Education Committee run by a moderate Republican, Gail Manning from North Royalton. So um, Laura hasn't been able to get answers on why exactly it's gone to this local government committee. OK, you are listening to Today in Ohio. How did Mike Gibbons go from being pretty much a nobody to a top candidate for the Republican primary for the U.S. Senate in Ohio? Lisa, we don't normally do a single person story in a race where there's multiple candidates and put it on the front page of the Plain Dealer because there's a fairness issue. But this is news. He has broken out. He has actually become a pretty significant player and nobody was taking him seriously. So when Andrew Tobias proposed this story, I said, well, it's news. Let's go with it. What did he find? Yeah. um, According to Columbus Republican strategist Terry Casey, who was interviewed by Andrew Tobias, he says that Mike Gibbons is leading for three reasons, money, money, and money. And he has he has raised over $12 million so far in his campaign, and all but about 750000 of that is from his own pockets. Um, this has caused him to be one of the reasons why he's leading in most recent polls. Both internal and external polls show Mike Gibbons at the top. He's passed Josh Mandel, who was sitting at the top of most polls until recently. And there was a poll done by the uh, Protect Ohio Values PAC back on March 1st. And this is the PAC that's kind of backing J.D. Vance, one of Gibbons' opponents. And even they found that Gibbons was leading. And it's worrying this U- other U.S. Senate candidates enough that they're featuring Gibbons in attack ads, Jane Timken, and then the uh, Protect Ohio Values Pack have, have used him in attack ads. So obviously they're worried about it. But yeah, money speaks. He's a Cleveland businessman, an investment banker. Also, he started um, spending early on TV ads. Usually campaigns will wait
wait until closer to the primaries and to election day before they really start running ads. But he's been running ads since last summer. So he's really been out there, you know, saying that he's Trump tough and all of that stuff for quite a long time on television. Well, and Andrew says he does come across like a regular guy. And look, let's face it, we hear from Republicans all the time. They really feel like anybody but Josh Mandel. People hate Josh Mandel because of all of his pathetic and sick pandering. I mean, the biggest fear most Republicans I, I know have is that Mandel will be the candidate because they fear he would lose then to a Democrat because nobody likes him. So I'm not surprised to see him falling behind. You can't really trust any of these polls, we should point out. Right. Stop reporting a lot of horse race polls. But maybe Gibbons is emerging because he comes across more like a regular guy. J.D. Vance has come across like a fire-breathing lunatic. Um, you know, Jane Timken is is so pushing the fealty to Trump um, in, in kind of a pathetic way. And Gibbons is the guy that people would have a drink with at the bar. And I think in Ohio, too, a lot of people, you know, he's not been a political animal for as long as most of his other, uh, you know, opponents. He was actually ran in 2017 for the Senate seat that's now held by Sherrod Brown. And actually, he was fa- he faced Mandel in that primary. But as we recall, Mandel dropped out for unspecified reasons. I guess his wife was ill or whatever. And then Gibbons ended up losing to Jim Renacci. He got 32% of the vote to Renacci's 48%. So he's kind of a kind of a newcomer, I think, to the political scene, at least in Ohio. But yeah, he does. He looks like a regular guy. He's not a fire-breathing dragon. So, and that may be, you know, uh, an acquired persona just for this. But yeah, but he does say Trump tough in his ads. So, and he's totally... Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. He's he's as conservative as they get. I mean, he's completely in in Trump's corner, but I don't think he's been as gross about begging for the benediction as the others. It is odd. It seems like that you can buy the seat. I mean, that's what he's done is he's used his money to good effect and he's buying the seat so far. It'd be interesting to see if he can maintain that or if the other candidates attacking him bring him back down into the into the pack. It's a good story by Andrew Tobias. Check it out on cleveland.com and it's on the front page of today's Plain Dealer. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Where does Ohio rank in the percentage of nursing home workers who have been vaccinated for the coronavirus? Lisa, if you recall in the beginning of the pandemic, the one good news thing we had was that nursing homes had a high level of vaccine available and it was because the state wasn't really handling it the feds were um but but distressing news out of the ranking that came out yesterday yeah there uh this was done by the um I don't know if it was done by the Ohio Healthcare Association, but anyway, um, the nursing home staff vaccination rate in Ohio is 72.4%. We are the second lowest state of 50. We're only beating Missouri, whose vaccination rate for staff was 71.9%. Compare that to Rhode Island, Guam, and Puerto Rico, where their nursing home staff vaccination rate is 99.4%. And we have to remember that the Biden vaccination mandate for nursing home staff still stands because the the Supreme Court allowed it to stand. So all nursing home staff have to be fully vaxxed by next week, March 15th. Um, the Ohio Healthcare Association, which represents skilled nursing facilities, Peter Van Runkle of that group says that a lot of things played into this. You know, the anti-mandate people, the vax mistrust, 
pregnant women were worried because they didn't know how it would affect their unborn child. And of course, the old personal freedom thing. And he said, you know, people were worried about staffing levels. They were kind of hesitant. It was, we know, some of our local hospitals were hesitant to do vaccine mandates because they were worried about staffing levels. But he said none of these skilled nursing facilities have closed because of staffing issues. And we're also not looking great for her nursing home resident vaccin- vaccination rates. We're the seventh lowest in the nation, and we're at 83.4% for uh, vaccinated nursing home residents, the national average is a a little over 87.2%. We're also the seventh lowest state in nursing home residents who have received boosters. Only 65.9% of them have received it. So we're kind of lagging on all quarters there, which is kind of distressing. Yeah, it, 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 it was interesting, too, that the nursing home attitude seemed to be we're going to see what happens. Maybe we won't get caught in a federal review and we won't get penalized if we have some people on here who are not, or if they can show that they may, they took steps to try and get their staff to get vaccinated, that maybe they'll be okay, even though they have such low numbers for now, it's not that big an issue. The, the, the virus is in abeyance and we look like we're going to have a few months at least where it's not running rampant, but if it runs rampant again, this puts people in nursing homes in some danger. And that's where, you know, we had horrible death tolls in nursing homes. It was just horrible. Okay, you're listening to Today in Ohio. What is the good news for First Energy shareholders who want the utility to reimburse them for all of that money they lost when the stock price crashed in the wake of First Energy's notorious corruption? Laura? They can go forward with the case. The federal judge ruled late Monday against First Energy's attempt to dismiss this lawsuit. They said that the House Bill 6 scandal caused the market value of utility stop to drop by $10 billion. I mean, that is a massive, hard-to-imagine amount of money. And First Energy just wanted to say, nope, go away. And the judge is saying, no, obviously you have a case here. This is U.S. District Judge Algernon Marbley. And the lawsuits accused the utility and 25 current and former directors of hiding wide-ranging statehouse bribery scheme from those regulators and investors and basically hiding everything they were doing that was illegal. And it, obviously, when it came to light, that's what made the stock drop. And this is totally separate from a derivative lawsuit that settled with shareholders for $180 million. That benefits the company. Yeah, I, it was a little bit surprising this was even an issue. Of course, the they've been wronged. They, you know, there were there were mm-hmm. crooks at the top of that utility that did terrible things, and when the news came out of what they did, the price dropped. So you clearly have a cause of action, and that's the judge used some pretty strong words to say, "Of course, I'm not going to throw this out. Of course, they have a right to pursue compensation." Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's a pretty cut and dried, no duh kind of ruling, I would think. I mean, if you're going to get 180 million dollars to benefit your company because of the wrongdoing, I think the shareholders get a shot at saying they've been wronged. Yeah, yeah exactly. And First Energy's already put aside money to pay it, so they kind of knew this was going to come. And if they've admitted they bribed people, so I I don't even know what kind of gall that takes to argue in court that this should be. Yeah, out. I know it's just like householder arguing in court there was no quid pro quo evidence. <laughs> it's like yeah, there is. Right, it was just campaign donations. That's all, Chris. <laughs> right. Totally legal. Okay, you're listening to today in Ohio. 
What step is the Ohio legislature taking to deal with a looming election deadline instead of simply postponing the primary election day for May until June or later? Laura, I still don't understand why they don't just postpone the election. This seems like a possibly illegal step they're taking because it's giving one class of voters a different set of rights than another class of voters. I think that breaks the law. Well, that's an interesting perspective, and I'm sure we're going to be checking it out because their way of doing this is saying this will let the federal government's going to let us do this. And what they wouldn't let them do is, you know, not give military voters a chance to vote fairly. So they're trying to reconcile that issue without actually pushing back the election. And I'm totally with you. I think we should just push it back Mm -hmm. to June or July and make sure that everything is all in line and we all have time to vote because. This is coming up really quickly. There's a March 18th deadline to send these ballots to to the military voters. And Frank LaRose, the Secretary of State, says the federal government has signaled it will okay waiving this deadline if the new law change is quickly approved. Uh, But the net effect could mean that military members have less time to vote depending on the speed of the mail. But you're right. They're being treated differently than every other class of voters, which seems ripe for some kind of federal lawsuit. I I just don't see how you can continue down that path. And I think it's inevitable they're going to have to postpone the election. We're just we're moving too close to it with nothing certain. I mean, we may get legislative districts. The Supreme Court should rule. We thought we'd rule by now, but certainly today Mm -hmm. or tomorrow on the legislative districts, which they could accept. And that would close that chapter. But we still don't have congressional or they're going to reject the legislative, too, and set this thing back weeks more. You can't possibly have an election in May and the legislature keeps playing this game like it somehow pressures the Supreme Court into acting. Maureen O'Connor has made clear that she doesn't consider that pressure at all. Strange case. Yeah, absolutely. This just this law, which was passed unanimously, just allows them to miss this March 18 deadline, extend it to April 4th and then allow military ballots to come in up to 20 days after the May 3rd election. But you're right. That doesn't address so many of the other problems. Like what district am I in and who's my, you know, who am I voting for? Those those are not answers. It's really a level of irresponsibility by the legislature that they should be ashamed of. And they keep talking about the sanctity of the election. It's like if you value the sanctity of the election, then move the election. Well, but I think that this might be kind of a, a weird little ploy to say, you know, because as we talked earlier in a podcast about the Cuyahoga County Board of Elections, he's like, Mistakes are going to be made if they don't on the ballots, if they don't move it. And it's like maybe they want mistakes to be made because they can say, look, there's no election integrity. You know what I mean? It kind of plays into their 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 uh, script. Yeah. Yeah. I still think they're going to have no choice but to postpone it. You're listening to Today in Ohio. How is a parks activist trying to slow down Metro Health's plan to demolish some buildings to build a park? in its new campus setting. Lisa, MetroHealth is kind of aghast saying, hey, we've talked this out. The neighborhood supports us. But this activist is saying, let's slow down. Yeah, Bob Garden, who is apparently a big player in Northeast Ohio and in terms of historic preservation and use of public spaces, he's a huge advocate. He was part of the Green Ribbon Coalition, which was going to build, you know, a ramp over 90 to the lakefront, not the Haslam plan, but another one, and also with Big Creek Connects. But he says, 
says that the public deserves debate on the proposed demolition of these two buildings in the new Metro Health Campus area. These two buildings are the St. Nicola Belarusian Orthodox Church at 3518 Scranton Road. It was built in 1950. It's been vacant for several years. And also the historic Farnsworth House at 3517 West 25th. That was built in 1888 and uh, it was the home of Harry Farnsworth, who was a news publisher and attorney in Cleveland. Garden is asking Metro Health to spare these buildings at least until the park area along 25th Street is finished. So the park area is kind of a little triangle of land along West 25th with Scranton on the other side, and these buildings sit in that little triangle. He says, you know, if you spare them until the park area is done, it might spur interest in redeveloping or reusing these buildings. Garden is also worried about Emanuel Church at 3525 West 25th. Metro Health bought that back in 2014, and it's currently being used as office space and also for construction workers who are working on the Glick Tower. So, um, you know, but Metro Health says they really want this area to be completely spark park space. They want, you know, to realign that intersection as part of the construction, and they want clear sight lines to which will be the main entrance of their campus. Yeah, I I feel for Metro Health on this because they were very community oriented in the way they went about this. They brought in all sorts of people to to get support because this transformation is pretty profound. It it is odd at this last moment that this is coming up, but you know if if you do rush through it at this point and people find fault in it later, the rush does come back to haunt you. So we'll have to see how they work through this. It, they, I don't think they want to delay the movement on their campus. You're listening to Today in Ohio. How are the biggest Northeast Ohio players in economic development trying to position the region as the Midwest leader for technology growth, especially after Intel opted to build its new microchip plant in the center of the state? Laura, this is one of those stories that in the newsroom we see as important, not so much interesting. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry. Yeah, I did sit through the presentation yesterday and there's not like a big shiny piece of news to come out of this, but they are working on economic development. And this is a partnership of the Greater Cleveland Partnership, Team Neo, Jumpstart, Fund for Our Economic Future, and the Cleveland Foundation, as well as a hundred other partners that have been brought on since this group was founded in 2019. And they say they're working together in a way that they never have before, and they've aligned their goals. So we're talking about work toward an end goal but yeah no so far no big intel plant coming here and one reason is we just don't have thousands of acres of green sites that they can show people especially in a very short time i mean we're talking less than a week they said of what they could put together so well, we didn't the goals and were, we didn't have the land i mean the, the, no, this, the, 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 the intel plant gone to columbus is not in any way a failure of Northeast Ohio. It's just not, we didn't have a place for it. And they recognize because they're not being parochial. This is good for Ohio. What's good for Ohio is good for Northeast Ohio. So, so it's a little bit of a red herring to throw that into the top of the question. The, 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 The real significance of what's happening here is all of these folks had, had not always worked well together Uh, Mm -hmm. you know we've talked for years about all all of them working in silos and isolation and they've turned that around they are working together they are talking there's been some changes in leadership but there's also been a real commitment to thinking as one and it is making a difference it's a significant 
development and they're measuring right. their success. How are they doing that? Well, they're looking at their specific goals and they want to advance smart manufacturing. They want to further health innovation, grow the local talent pool. They want to really focus on water technology. And they're looking for projects that they can point to that says this is what we want other companies to be able to do them. They're calling them lighthouses to kind of show the way for other companies. So, it, And Bethia Burke of the Fund for Our Economic Future said it's like flypaper. There are a lot of ideas and innovations and goals whizzing around. The innovation project is meant to stick them together, move them forward in a collaborative way. And so they do. They, they put out a report yesterday. I really obviously these are not government agencies. They don't have to show us their numbers, but they, they are. So so far, they have they have the innovation district that was anchored by the Cleveland Clinic. That's happened in 2022. They want to engage small healthcare businesses and including 85 local businesses and 30 from outside Ohio for water technology. They have three water tech test beds so that companies can demonstrate their technology. Their goal for 2022 to have more companies use them, hold two innovation challenges, and engage 50 companies and supply the seed money to these companies. So they do have numbers of what they've accomplished so far and what they really hope to do in in 2022 and all the way till 2030. Well, the idea of Team Neo and the Greater Cleveland Partnership and the Cleveland Foundation and Jumpstart, the Fund for the Economic Future, all working so closely together, I mean, that's been a dream for a lot of people in Cleveland for a long time, and they truly are. It's They, they appear to be working in good faith, so credit to all of them. And, and this is obviously a long-term plan. Like, I feel like so many times we have these one-offs where we have an event that everybody's working together, and then you're like, what happened to it, right? This is a long-term commitment to each other and the region to work together and and create technology here okay and you're I, listening to te- oh, yeah i just wanted to say i found it interesting that bill kohler with team neo because i attended the presentation yesterday as well he actually boiled this down to three words which i thought were pretty interesting he said we want to be nimble we want to be focused and we want to be impactful which is something we haven't really seen in the past so that that's a good uh thing to go by right so bill kohler ray leach ron richard becky burke and Bijou Shaw, way to go to get this done. You're listening to Today in Ohio. A lot of parents relied on the expanded child tax credit to get through the pandemics. What is Senator Sherrod Brown doing to make it permanent, Laura? He is working with Mitt Romney, which I probably wouldn't have guessed. But during the this 2021 tax year, you'll remember the American Rescue Plan gave eligible parents $300 a month for each kid under six, $250 for each child six to 17. Basically, we're giving the money rather than having to wait until you filed your taxes. And they went out on the 15th of every month. The last one was in December. Um, Sherrod Brown said by sending these checks, they reduced the poverty rate by 40% nationally, which is jaw-dropping. And the White House said the credit helped about 1.4 million Ohio families with 2.3 million children, and that across the country, 40 million families with 65 million kids benefited from this. So there's talk about making this permanent. And um, a lot of people are on board. Portman said he's open to it. U.S. Representative Chantel Brown is all for it. She said more than 70,000 households in her districts benefited from it. So Brown says he's going to happen, and he wants to happen in a bipartisan way. Okay. You're listening to Today in Ohio. 
I'm going to throw one more out there. A nod, tip of the hat to Patrick Shepard, one of the regular listeners. He's part of the Cleveland International Film Festival and sent us a note to say, hey, in your discussion yesterday, you missed a chance to point out one of the films that Laura would have a big interest in. I didn't get to say it, but I was interested in it. There is a documentary. I think it's called The Lake Erie Project as part of the Cleveland International Film Festival. The Lake Erie Situation. Situation. Okay, thank you. And it looks at 2014 when Toledo lost their drinking water for like three days because of the algae bloom was so bad and it got into the system so that people could not drink the water. It was toxic. So this sounds like one that I definitely need to see. Yeah, it's screening on Sunday, April 3rd, Monday, April 4th. Thank you, Patrick Shepard, one of our regular listeners, for sending the note in to point that out. It's Today in Ohio, and that does it for a Wednesday discussion. Thank you, Laura. Thank you, Lisa. Thanks to everybody who listens, and thanks to Patrick Shepard. We'll be back tomorrow. 